Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and BBC television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. My guest today is somebody who goes by the title of an elite sports sleep coach, but I hope it's going to provide a very different perspective on sleep because this is someone who has been heavily involved in trying to improve sporting performance by improving the quality of people's sleep. He's author of the book Sleep. It is Mr. Nick Littlehales. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Nick, I first came across your book, I think, probably at the time of its release in October 2016. Right. Uh, and I remember devouring on the train home, okay. uh, back up from London, really, really interesting. And the thing which really struck me, which I think is where I'm going to start the conversation today, is that you started off being the international sales and marketing director of Slumberland, which is the largest sleeping comfort group in Europe in the late 90s. Mm. Um, how did you get from being sales and marketing director of a of a sleep company to sort of coaching the likes of Ryan Giggs and David Beckham in terms of how they to should be improving their sleep? To, to be honest with you, um, I sometimes reflect on that myself because it's, uh, you know, what's covered off in the book. It's um, a story that people are quite interested in, not only because of the subject sleep, but also exactly as you pointed out. I... Um, I started off as a sales representative for this company, Slumberland. They were a very big branded company. And in about six years, I became their sales and marketing director. It meant that I could travel around the world and watch everybody sleeping and involved in different countries and all sorts of things. And along the whole time I was doing it, um, I always heard this word, you know, sleep was taken for granted. We knew that the consumers the population knew how important sleep was. But all the information that I'd come across was very sort of not really reflective of our own personal lives, you know, get eight hours a night and get to bed early or don't eat too late. And there was nothing really too specific. So I was just sat in uh, my office in the UK, which happened to be Oldham, Manchester. I had already handed my notice in to go off and do something different because maybe a little bit of a midlife crisis in my early 40s and just disillusioned with why sleep was just not a great subject, not a a great thing in the well-being world and all those sort of areas. I'd had a little bit of an engagement with a local football club called Oldham Athletic where I signed a cheque to sponsor their shirt, which was quite interesting in those days. So what year Um, would that have been in? Oh, 96, 7. Okay. And um, I think that's where the name Sumlin's coming back to me from. Yeah. Was I mean, it on the shirt? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, this local club, I did it because most of the workforce in the factory in the UK were Oldham Athletic supporters. Right. So it was nice to put the company's name on the shirt. But the media and press in those days, I mean, sponsored shirts now are just, you can have anything you want on it. But in those days, it was quite specific. So the the media really, you know, took the mickey out of Oldham Athletic because they've got this bed company sleep. So they had them all sleeping in the center circle, sleeping in the goals. And anyway, uh, Oldham Athletic, like a number of clubs around that area, were breeding grounds for Manchester United players. So there was a little bit of a connection, but not much. And I just thought, right, I've got nothing to do for a year, rolling out my director's contract. Um... So I'll just write to Manchester United. They're just down the road. And I'll ask them, what do they do about sleep? You know, and it was literally nothing more than that. Uh, I think the operative thing there was I wrote to them. Because in the bedding industry, we were really late adopters to technology. So in our factory, the accounts department would have computers. But the sales team wouldn't have mobile phones and laptops or anything like that. So I, I do reflect that back then, 
I was an international sales and marketing director traveling around the world with thousands and thousands of staff in all different countries without a phone or anything. So I think when I wrote to Manchester United, Alex Ferguson was the manager. He wrote back saying he'd asked a question to all his staff and they do nothing. Now, instead of just going, well, we do nothing, so there's no need to talk to you about anything, he was intrigued. So I got asked to go into the club to speak to the physio, which was a guy called Dave Fever. And he'd got a problem with uh, a centre-half called Gary Pallister, where they wrapped him in cotton wool. He wouldn't train, wouldn't have anything because of lower back issues. I remember, clearly. I was yep. a avid football fanatic at the time. He just, he just became intrigued because obviously my competence really from that letter was in betting products because of my position and the company. So to c- cut that a little shorter, I just went along and had a look at what this player was sleeping on at home. Because the physio was worried that while he was treating the player inside the training ground, when the player went away, he came up with this word, dehabilitating. So he's rehabilitating when he's with the physio and dehabilitating, driving his Ferrari home and whatever he's sleeping on for many hours. So I just checked it out. Classically, he'd got a rock-hard, orthopedic, chiropractically endorsed thing. And I just changed that to something I thought was more suitable to his body profile and encourage him to sleep in the right positions. Now, we did that. We didn't solve his back problem, but there were noticeable improvements. So the physio became even more intrigued. So whilst this was going on, I was also downloading all my knowledge about sleep, going, why do we do this? Why can't we do that? And so I started to, they asked me to talk to, to attend the training ground and just be available in the player's lounge And if any of the players want to come and talk to me about products, because he told them that I could improve things for them physically, the only person who came up to see me was Ryan Giggs. And Ryan Giggs at that time was somebody who was really interested in other areas of recovery and well-being. Uh, And so I did something with Ryan in his home and everything else. And then, you know, along that route, suddenly I was talking to them about sleep and we started to look at other things. A new physio came in called Rob Swire, who, you know, throughout his whole career at Manchester United, we became great friends. And we started doing things with Rob, like, for the first time ever, I mean, we're still in the 90s here, for the first time ever, Alex Ferguson decided that he wanted to train in the pre-season period, both in the morning and the afternoon, which was a first. So what happened was, is what do we do with the players in between the two training sessions? And rather than having them lying around on sofas and playing games and whatever, uh, we actually decided to, I suggested that they, we took a room inside the training ground, we cleared it out, we put in lounging products, and we encouraged all the players to actually go in there and what you would all know about is take a nap, take a sleep recovery period. Now, that's the first recovery room probably ever, and that was certainly the first recovery room in sport. And just imagine, we're talking 1997-98, no mobile phones. Most of these players were UK-born. So David Beckham, Ryan Giggs, the Neville brothers, Paul Scholes, the class of 92, if anybody's interested in Manchester United. They also just went and did something quite remarkable called win a treble. And in the dying minutes of a game against Bayern Munich, it was a, so there was a lot of focus on Manchester United at that time. Purely by accident, you know, I support Aston Villa. It was nothing to do with my relationship with that club. Just a professional engagement. Alex Ferguson was really intrigued about all the things that we were doing and just wrote me a quote one day saying, you know, what you're doing is absolutely brilliant, Nick, you know. And um, there's no sports science people around or anything. So just imagine back then with young lads, biggest club on the planet, uh, at that time, treble winning team. And we're talking to them about sleeping in between training sessions. And so that was just a really dramatic moment. And the way that came to pass is because the access to their training ground, as always, at the far gates, there are the media trying to catch pictures of the players and managers. So one of them just went, who is this person we see quite regularly? Yeah. Not a player, not an agent. No, who is he? 
And the guys on the internal gate, because, you know, I turn up and go, I'm Nick Little Hales. Um, I'm here to see Rob Swire. And, and they just picked up that I'm something to do with sleep and talking to the players about sleep. So they had no problem telling the media at the gate that, ah, oh, it's just somebody talking to the players about sleep. You know, what's that about? Um, so they just took the word coach, which is familiar in sport. They took the word sleep. And they just wrote in the papers, Manchester United have got a sleep coach. <laughs> Tucking them in and reading bedtime stories, no doubt. And it was all Mickey take because yeah. it was just ridiculous to think that Manchester United footballers needed help it's, with it's, sleep. You know and what that's it, it, really. You know what it's, <laughs> it's an incredible story. And, you know, you're talking about the late 90s and we're, we're in 2018. So let's say 20 years ago, just over yeah. 20 years ago, right? Given how prevalent uh, talk about sleep is today yeah. in society, you know, yeah. we're, we're getting this um, increased awareness, aren't we? I think the public oh, yeah. are getting increased awareness of the importance of yeah. sleep and how we've neglected it and probably... For sometimes the wrong reasons, Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but it's incredible. Just only 20 years ago, probably one of the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, wealthiest sports in the world, I, w- I would argue, yeah. you know, uh, Premier League football. Yeah. Um, and some of the top clubs, yeah. um, you know, it's hard for me as someone who grew up in Cheshire and did not support Manchester United to yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how I phrase this, particularly we've not gone into the injury time and how, you know, that was an outrageous amount of injury time when they won the treble. But that's a separate story well, they altogether. They have a term for that, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they do, yes. Um, but we, if I get back on topic on sleep, it is incredible how in just that short time frame, in fact, I, I find it staggering to think that they, nobody, these athletes were not prioritizing sleep no. and how you literally were doing your job. You know, you, you sponsor the local team, mm. Oldham Athletic. Um, you know, everyone thinks it's a bit funny, a bit of a joke. You know, mm. I, I can only imagine the headlines if ever Oldham let a goal in or an own goal or they've gone to sleep. And, you know, I can only imagine what sort of headlines there may yeah, have yeah. been. But from just writing a letter, so Alex Ferguson re- responds to you, goes, no, we don't know much about that. You know, come in, let's, let's talk about that. It, it's just incredible to me. It is. I think the, if, if the Slumlands UK office was anywhere else, anywhere else at that time, because as you pointed out, no sports science, very little data collection, you know, nothing was there. No, no manager or anybody would have responded to a letter just saying, what do you do in sleep? They'd have just gone, we do nothing, thanks very much. Right? I mean, it's time and place, that wouldn't happen today. No, no, no. You'd have to show, oh, I've got this data, this is yeah. what I've shown. Oh, God, you, yeah. It just wouldn't happen today, no, would it? No, no, And so, but I think this whole relationship at the time, like I said, you know, pretty much 80 plus percent of the team were UK born. So they were all part of a little family. They'd come through the ranks, these class of 92 and principally whatever Alex wanted to do yeah then the staff and everybody just went we'll do it and so what a unique set of circumstances uh, to actually me be next to that club with that manager with that set of circumstances and he was very open to let's find out about it you know, rather than just shutting the door. And arguably, that's probably one of the reasons he was so successful, maybe, because he was well, open and, and you, in, know. Uh, you know, up for embracing these sort Absolutely. of things. Absolutely. And he was always at the forefront. There was another manager called Sam Allardyce, who was at Bolton at the time, and they were quite close friends. And And Sam was also one of these people who was, you know, if somebody came in and they've got something different, if it was relevant, they'd look at it. What's an urban um, Whereas other, you know, even even clubs that I might go to now won't take that approach because they still think back in the era of a clip around the air holes, get out on the pitch and do your stuff, sort of almost Georgie Best type thing. But that was a unique thing. So when we actually, when I said we should create a room to help them sleep in between training sessions, this is midday, right? He just went, right, okay, I like, I like what you're saying to me, so I'll make it happen. So when I said to the players, you need to do this, they didn't turn around to me and say, I won't do that. They just went, okay, let's have a go. Show us what to do, Nick, and we'll try it. And what did they do? They did it. So tell, tell me, you've got this, they're, they're, they've created this room yeah. um, with the purpose of, you know, passing the time between morning training sessions and afternoon training sessions. Yeah. You have recommended to this 
huge club yeah. that the players potentially should be taking a nap. I'm laughing as we say this, you know. Right? I, I, I'm, just, I'm just going through it in my head. So I'm thinking, okay, and... I almost you know, think, did that actually happen? Yeah, it, it sounds so strange. So obviously the, the manager who had a lot of, from, from certainly from the press reports, had a lot of autonomy at the club to yeah. sort of make decisions. Oh, yeah. He was on board. He says, "Right, we'll get this room set up." So, what 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 does that room look like? What did you it have was, in the room? There was not, you know, there was nothing. It was just, it was a room where they had some storage, they had some desks, they had somebody working there doing administration, but it was big enough to get sort of ten or twelve lounges in there. Um, so we cleaned it out. So it was just a normal room, like we're sat in this studio today. It wasn't specific to recovery. Did, did it have beds in? Well, well, I I sourced a product which was like a, a single lounger so they could put it in different positions right. rather than a bed because I think that would have gone too far. Um, and we had 12 of those in the room and so that we they could all go into that room and just curl up on it. So I had to then give them, you know, how do you nap, right? So... I had to, uh, well, I know that, so I'll do that. So suddenly my, my language was not only product-orientated, but also then became sleep-orientated. And what they did, it wasn't too scientific, I have to say, but what they noticed, that certain people, certain players, as they were taking that recovery period, and whether they fall into sleep or not, there seemed to be benefits. So even if even if one of the players didn't actually fall asleep. They were in mental and physical recovery, just lying there. What benefits? Well, when they looked at data in the afternoon, right? you know, maybe a sprint between A and B over 30 metres, they could see that if they didn't go and nap, maybe it was a little slower in the afternoon than it was in the morning. Right? And there was tiny little things like that. And also, the people who did it seemed to be more alert and aware and happy in the afternoon, whereas the ones who didn't were sort of carrying the, the effects of the morning, right? I mean, this is it's absolutely incredible because you've gone there from your sleep company um, without a load of data and science, and, let's say, to back up what you're suggesting. Absolutely. And I'm not oh, a doctor or an academic in sleep at all. <laughs> uh, yet you've, you've achieved great things and you've, you've ha- managed to show uh, an industry the benefits of doing this, which I, which I, f- I think is fantastic. And on a, on a separate scale, as you know, I think, I think qualifications, fine, they can be important, but they're not always important because some of this is common sense, yeah. right? Some of this is oh, yeah. just common sense. You don't Very need to necessarily so. get a degree in common sense to apply some common sense. All right, thank you. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's... It's remarkable to me that, and, and the reason I'm going to bring this up is because people listening to this may be thinking, well, yeah, it's all right for Premier League footballers, but how does that apply to me? Well, let's just think about what you just said for a minute. For those people who took that nap or that recovery period, let's say, so they weren't always falling asleep, yeah. that having that physical and mental recovery, their performance was improved. Obviously, in a footballer, you know, the, 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 the speed... Uh, you know, of sprinting is, is you know, very important parameter to measure, yeah. right? But, you know, people listening might be working in an office or might yeah. be working, you know, in other environments. Mm. You know, your performance, their attention, their concentration would also be improved by recovery periods, let's say. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, this has lots of crossover benefits, I think, yeah. for the general public. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fact, what are some of those, do you think? What have you gleaned in... What, 20 years, let's say, at yeah. least, of being involved in elite sport and, 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 and advising on sleep. You know, what, what can the, the layman on the street learn from that? I think um, just very quickly to sort of bring that story to date, um, part of that squad played for the national squad, England national squad. So when they went to the national squad, they started to raise questions about things that they were learning in Manchester United that wasn't reflective in the England setup. There was a physio who looked after the England squad, a guy called Gary Lewin, who was also shared with Arsenal Football Club. Yeah. So Gary just went, hang on a minute, they're asking these questions, called me, uh, and my friend Andy Olno, who was the marketing sponsorship manager for England at the time, also, you know, we had dialogue. And Gary said, will you come into Arsenal and do what you're doing? And I went, well, I, I don't actually know what I'm doing, to be honest, because I'm still a director, you know, in, under contract for another three or four months. Um, 
you want me to come and speak to the whole Arsenal football team in conference style about sleep? Me. Right? He said, yeah. Now, the weird thing about that moment was there was a French manager had just arrived. <laughs> yeah. And he was thinking about aromatherapy and take your shoes off and sounds. And he was a completely different manager to anybody else that ever come near the... So open-minded, the, I'm guessing, yeah, towards yeah. sleep. Now, there's another moment, you see, because Gary just said to Arsene Wenger, I want to bring this guy in, and it's about sleep. And he just went, fantastic. Now, another moment where if, if that manager not, is so different to everybody else yes. that it meant that I could do that. So I had to adopt the title of I am a football sleep coach. Uh, well, I won't use football, but I'll, somebody said, why not elite? Because we are elite clubs. I said, okay, I've been elite sports. And then I had to sit down and think, how am I going to keep, you know, male-dominated, high-profile Arsenal footballers? The other key thing here was that the players were for different parts of the world. Whereas Manchester United, it was more UK-centric. We had Cesc Fabregas, Thierry Henry, Adi Bayor, Thomas Rizicki, Gail Clichy, Czech... So were, were some of the so obviously you talk about Fabregas, Spanish. Yeah. Uh, Spain have a culture of yeah. naps. That's right. Did you find that different nationalities were more or less receptive? Was there was there yeah. anything there at all? Oh, there's lots of things went on, and, and and it's only it's only at the time it was just it was just problem solving because I I suddenly thought well. I don't want to talk to them about sleep because their perception of it has got no value, right? So just go to bed and see you in the morning type of thing. So I knew that sleep is basically measured in a 90-minute period in a clinical situation with all the professors I knew. You look at the data of all the sleep stages over 90 minutes and then look at another set of 90 minutes. So I thought, right, so five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. So that's a bit more definitive than eight hours randomly 90 minutes is the length of a football game with a gap in between for recovery <laughs> so i thought okay i'll use that we'll think in cycles rather than hours and we'll talk breaks and so what i did is i created the seven areas that a player could look at and if they made a little change in each of those little seven areas then they would improve their approach redefine their approach to sleep and while I was doing that, I mean, that first, that first workshop with all the players, because they were all compulsory had to come, was a bit of fun. You know, the yeah. play, some of the players in there were just, what on earth are we doing in here? Um, but there's always somebody like Thierry Henry, anybody in a club like that, they just stand up and go, calm down, we're here to learn, right? So let's, let's just calm it down. But your point there was interesting because... Says Fabregas, Spain, you know, doesn't do anything between one and three most times. What, in, as in that he's just sort of well, culturally doesn't... Well, that's the doesn't... culture, you know. Exactly. It's, I mean, Spain doesn't go to sleep between one and three. Some people think that. They're still an active company, country, but basically between one and three, they try not to do things. It's downtime, right? It's downtime. So having him train in the morning and then train in the afternoon, that's, that's not comfortable so you could see him not training in the afternoons pre-season he'd be sat there you know eating broccoli you mean if it was between one and three he wouldn't be training well, that's really. where it would be you see yeah um that's interesting and the other thing was is that he was quite happily chatting to his family and his his friends at 12 o'clock at night and they're all in a restaurant with the kids because they stay up later yeah. so there was a lot of things going on around the club with the different nationalities and cultures that suddenly meant that my conversation about sleep and recovery started to build because of these things. Was that challenging? Because like, let's say you've got a Spanish player who is used to staying up late, yeah. but also having some downtime between 1pm yeah. and 3pm, yeah. yet maybe some of his uh, British colleagues or, yeah. or colleagues from other nationalities, sorry, from other countries may not be doing that. Yeah. Um, did that pose challenges when trying to make it uniform as to, you know, Arsenal Football Club need to try and sleep like this yeah i i the challenges were just enormous because but i think that's why i constantly try to find a language um 
uh, try to make it a little bit more relevant so we could actually talk like says Fabregas is on a five cycle routine he's on a three cycle routine I'm on a six cycle routine I love it you start so they started to think like that rather than just go to bed for eight hours I I just you know I just investigated um has the human being ever slept in a different way than just eight hours at night and you only have to look back to the 1700s when we invented electric light that humans never slept in long blocks. It was always a multiphasic approach called polyphasic. Mm. So they'd sleep for shorter periods more often. Sometimes some of those polyphasic approaches were, were really multiphasic. I mean, it's like 30 minutes every six hours or four hours. I mean, there's uh, lots of things. you look. So I thought, that's interesting. So if I look at the team, and you've got these different cultures, and you look at the schedules of what they're being asked to do, if they literally went on to a four or five cycle routine, but we don't try and get it all at night, we actually use, as I found out, the other second natural sleep period is, is around midday, between one-ish, three-ish, wherever you are on the planet, where it's completely natural for us as human beings just to zone out and maybe take a bit of a kip. There's another one early evening between five yeah. and seven. And I thought, wow, that would make it a hell of a lot easier for Cesc Fabregas to deal with his schedule. And maybe the manager will understand that. And maybe they can have a 30 minutes respite and then go out training. Uh, and in early evening. So, so it- did, you, did you basically set up a series of... Um, we want to get, as you said, it was, a, it was a really beautiful way you put it, you know, these 90-minute sleep cycles. And if you do, what is it, five of those... That's seven and a half that's hours. That's seven and a half hours. Yeah. And is, is that where the, the line on the front cover of your book, The Myth of Eight Hours, comes from? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... Because it, it wasn't me sort of trying to, to break the mould or go against the academics. So of course, when you look at any 24-hour period, as a human being, you know, eight hours in recovery is probably the healthy option. Yeah. But the th- so we're not we're not reducing that down. We're just saying 5 90 minute cycles, 7.5 hours in a day. So would you would these would the would the with the players that you were coaching mm. uh, or advising would would the advice be look we need to in this 24 hour period you need to try and get five 90-minute cycles, whether you choose to get them in the evening, in the afternoon, yeah, or whatever, get much. them whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. and, and do you know what I like about that, Nick? And it's, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of guessing that people listening to this, some people may really resonate with that because there's a lot of pressure, I think, put on people to get their deep eight hours in every night. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, and I often give the advice, you know, routine is very important. But, yeah. you know, modern life makes routine quite tricky for some people, yeah. shift workers in particular, which, mm-hmm. is a, which is a separate issue. But even just breaking it down simplistically that there are these 90-minute cycles, just try and get five in, in every 24 hours. Yeah. You know, that's, that might be more palatable to a lot of people. I um, think when somebody, you know, when you... I've never met anybody who sleeps eight hours in one block without any awakenings 365 days of the year. People wake up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep. They they try to sleep for eight hours, but wake up early and do this and do that. They wake up two or three times. So when you're actually looking at it, you may be allocating an eight-hour period with probably half an hour to an hour beforehand, mm. putting your PJs on, and then in the morning, half an hour to an hour, waking yourself up. So this is more like 10 or 11 hours, right, (laughs) allocated to something that most people wake up in the morning and they don't feel refreshed. And they use caffeine and the stimulant that they've got to go on. This is not a performance criteria. It doesn't matter how you've slept. No sleep at all. You will still wait. You'll still start your day and go and do what you need to do. So this relationship with when you start to think in a polyphasic way and you look at the circadian rhythms and mm-hmm. how we're in harmony and pattern with that, and if you go too far away from it, which we're doing, which we are mad, doing. Um, then there is quite a natural thing within that 24-hour clock that around 2 or 3 o'clock, you are likely, as a human being, to have gone through enough deep sleep stages. So it's quite natural, like the Victorians did before the light bulb, to wake around that time, go and see a neighbour, do some stuff, and then go back to sleep again. So 
Once somebody understands that waking up at two o'clock in the morning and feeling quite awake is completely natural, they become positive, they stop worrying. It takes the pressure off. Absolutely, it takes the pressure off. Because that anxiety and worry is is a problem in itself, isn't it? Yeah, and I got, you, you know, and then suddenly when you started to see that the football teams were now doing night games at quarter to eight, not getting back to there, then all the media in 24 started to crawl, so they're not even getting home till this. Yes, yeah, so you've, I guess you've, what you're illustrating there is that you have had to adapt, yeah. you know, and innovate with your strategies to allow that the footballers or the sportsmen you're working with yeah. to get their recovery time around more and more challenges Absolutely. That, are, that are existing. And, yeah. and it's really interesting, you know, you, you, What's really striking for me is that you started this uh, work with footballers in the 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> you make me feel old. Well, no, but what, I tell you what, what is interesting. <laughs> 20 Nick, years that, ago now, isn't it? But, but those 20 years have seen an incredible amount of change in society. Mind-blowing, mind-blowing. You know, arguably some of the biggest change we've ever seen. And so yeah. 20 years ago, we didn't really... And of course, someone might correct me if I'm, I'm not technically correct on this. But, you know, is, I think it's fair to say that mobile phones were not the norm like they are today. Oh, no, no, no. Right. No, no. So have you had to evolve your advice over the past 20 years to take into account modern technology? And then, as you say, in the, you know, the 24-hour media cycles that now exist, yeah. Yeah. because let's say a player uh, has got an eight o'clock kickoff game. Yeah. In the Champions League, let's say, and let's say it all runs to time ish, and the game finishes around nine fifty, yeah. nine fifty five by the time you know extra time and everything's been played. You know, obviously there's the uh, adrenaline rush of playing, the kind of euphoria, mm. uh, all that emotional excitement, and then some players obviously then have to go and do press interviews afterwards yeah. in bright lights, which yeah. again wakes you up. Yeah. Um, it's going to take quite a long time for those players, I'm guessing, for some of them to actually start to wind down and be in a state that they could even sleep in the first place. Absolutely. So do you then have to tweak your advice? Or is that when your 90-minute cycles uh, comes in very, very handy? Yeah, I think all, all that's happened is that, you know, as we said, along with the story... Um, I started to to look at these things and and develop them because of what I was trying to solve in front of me. Um, And that's progressively become more relevant as each year has passed than it was then, right? So I got involved with the England squad in Euro 2004. It was in Portugal. They were only in one hotel for the whole period. So they were were just travelling to games, which was unusual. So they could take this hotel over. So I got asked to take over the hotel and so we chose rooms for the players because of the sun coming up and the sun coming down and temperature we looked at so you, blackout. On, you would choose you would choose rooms based upon yeah, where yeah, the sun yeah. was rising yeah 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 because the, because some of the rooms with the hotel the sun had come up and it would you know pile heat into those rooms but not the ones at the back and then as it goes over it does the opposite so we had we had curtain shutting protocols. <laughs> I went all around the hotel with Dr. Leif Sward and Sven Goran Eriksson's doctor, and we, it was just fascinating. So, literally, what happened was we profiled the players, you know, height, weight, shape, allergies, you name it. And I checked all the products in the hotels, and they were all classic hotel stuff, of course, not designed for elite athletes. And then I designed some products, we put them on a ship, took them to Portugal, took them into the hotel rooms. And we basically set up David Beckham's room or, you know, the England players. And it was literally like that. And we told them, you know, how to, you know, keep the curtain shut, temperature in the room. We looked at the product. So we put little toppers on it, took our own linen out there, took our own bedding. I mean, the hotel manager at the time was just looking at me as if I was some sort of sci-fi crazy alien bloke. Because the thing was, they've already paid for these rooms, haven't they? And the rooms have got bathroom and beds and everything. lovely so you know, why yeah. are you why are you bringing your own stuff and i think what happened then from that so there was another area that people are going what on earth are you doing well that isn't a room for an elite athlete to recover in Did it's you, a hotel room you know so back in 2004 yeah and you know 
weirdly enough, I was at that same tournament. Well, yeah, but as so I, was I. I was in the stand when the, when Zinazine Zidane ruined 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 our moment. That was was that the quarterfinal? Uh, I think it was the first game, wasn't it? Well, I I flew, I flew out with my brother Did you? for the semi-final because I yeah. tried to predict where England would get to. Right, okay. Uh, but England got knocked out in the quarterfinal, so I yeah. think we went out to see. Portugal v Holland, I think. Oh, was it? Portugal v the Netherlands, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was actually ra- ra- oh, randomly wow. in Lisbon flying out with my we brother to see that game. We may have walked past each other a long time ago. We may, we may <laughs> well have done. But what is interesting for me is 2004, you, you're already telling me that this was not commonplace in Premier no. League football. No, no. Right? So you'd done Man United, you were also invited to Arsenal. And I, I imagine sports teams, particularly elite sports teams, don't really share their their secrets around because, you know, everyone's trying well, to get, hmm. you know, a gain on their, on their opponents. But at a big tournament such as Euro 2004, did you get a sense that any other teams were focusing on sleep in no. the same way that you guys were? No, it was, just, it was just completely when you put those things together that, you know, if Manchester United are talking to this guy, if Gary Lewin, who's yeah. also the England squad... He's doing something. I mean, it's, when you say doing something, you know, it, we weren't sort of taking over the whole program. It was just like learning. Um, and what did the players feedback? Did they find it useful? I think they, they certainly. I think sometimes when you measure something, the best reaction is no reaction. Yeah, yeah. Because they actually, said, well, how's all this? Is it improving what you're doing? I said, well, I'd rather have it than not, because yeah. I took all the stuff off and just did it with the hotel, and it really is more comfortable. And if doing that sort of stuff is affecting me, that's fine. But I'm not actually measuring it. I mean, it's, for me, it's absolutely remarkable. Well, before, before we go into this, we, what, we could be here all day. <laughs> we really could be. And, and has this... Do you think this is changing in top-level sports? Oh, yeah, because, you know, just the next bit that came along. So I'm looking at these seven little areas where... I can go into with a player and go, let's do that, let's do that, let's check this, check that. And and it's all about education about the circadian rhythms, their personal chronotype, their sleep characteristic, sleeping in cycles rather than hours, pre and post sleep routines. Then you've got a balance, a better balance between activity and recovery because they get do too much. And then you've got sleeping environments and sleeping products. So there's the areas. Sleeping so, products. Sleeping products. What's because, a sleeping product? Oh, mattresses and pillows. Got it. And bedding. Because, you know, that was a bit of my... It was my opportunity to destroy the myths of how people approach these products. <laughs> but anyway, um, British Cycling got challenged to make cycling uh, famous in the UK, to win gold medals on the track and road, male and female, and also to put a British rider on the Tour de France podium within five years. And we're all encouraged to ride our bikes around the UK and rent bikes to healthy. So you make cycling famous and it'll help the, the health of the country. And um, so they had a thing called the aggregation of marginal gains. I know it well, yeah. Well, everybody knows it now. So they, Brailsford and the best coaches on the planet were given money to sort of put this together to make cycling famous. And... In the aggregation of marginal gains, when you're showing people how to wash their hands properly, uh, they check the carpet pile. They'd have to check everything to look for these little 1% extra factors. Well, they couldn't ignore sleep. So the only person who was wandering around with anything sort of relevant <laughs> to was I was actually aggregating the marginal gains in sleep. So I got involved with them, and suddenly everything I was doing suddenly had a a pathway and a map, and it came together. So wow. it became the... So you were involved with this British cycling? Yeah, very... 2008, nine. Wow. They were in Manchester at the Velodrome. We went in, and they just said, right, Nick's going to do sleep for us. And because we went on grand tours, like the Giro d'Italia, Team Sky was born at that time, so there was a lot of money around with Sky. And literally, we, we went through those seven areas with each rider, and that culminated in actually putting sleeping products inside a kit bag and taking on a grand tour because for all those things back in Euro 2004, we said, hang on a minute. When we're on tour, we're out there for two or three weeks, riding every day. We're in different hotels every night that's not designed for our riders. No. So are you suggesting that what that rider's got in their home, these layers and your kit, 
we'll put it in a bag and take it. Yeah. And they went, okay. And we, I designed the products, put them on the floor in the velodrome. All the coaching staff and Dave oh, got wow. down on it and went, I tell you what, we've got to take this. Because that <laughs> hotel room on, you know, on the Tour de France, who was in there last night? Who was in there last night? So when they started getting really nervous about picking up little viruses and stuff like that. So we started off sending a truck with 24 personalized sleep kits in bags and taking them into the hotel, unzipping them on the floor, ignoring the bed altogether. And in there is the linen, the pillow, the duvet, the little layers that conform to their body shape. It smells like home. It smells like them. So from a familiarity and everything else, the riders just went, love it. Wow. Right? Now, all the other cycling teams were just looking across going, what on earth are they doing? Mm. But the riders, again, as you pointed out, you know, we love to measure in sport, of course, but there was no need to measure this because during the course of every day, 200 kilometers, the riders knew that when they got back, um, they would massage, team meeting and everything Be else. Like and, home. and they'd be hanging around and not really wanting to rush up to that room upstairs because who was in there last night is not. And we all know that the first night in any new environment, we lose 40% opportunity to recovery. So don't ignore that which we can come on to when you talk about adrenaline and cortisol because we teach people not to sleep when things are in the wrong place. <laughs> so it's something like that. But so what happened was suddenly they could all see that the riders come in, they do their massage, team meeting, fuel up, and they've all gone upstairs. And they're all climbing into their little sleep kit. So they all want to go to bed. Yeah, because so recovery is massive to a cyclist. Yeah, yeah. Massive to a cyclist. And, um, no, I, 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 a few years back, I, w- I was getting a, a sports massage for someone who used to be on the tour. Yeah. And, um, you know, the masseur said to me that actually, you know, you know, there's often not fights, but people mm. want to come off. You know, they want to be the first one in to massage. They want to get yeah, that yeah. recovery started oh, early. Oh, intense stuff, yeah. Uh, intense and it was, it was incredible to hear that. But just a couple of things that, you know... you it's incredible that you you said that there's the same smell and the same feel because we've got the same products. Yeah. And, you know, we know that the brain is a very uh, associative organ. So, yeah. you know, it, it likes pattern, it likes routine. And, and it loves yeah, it, doesn't it? <laughs> just that itself, knowing that these are familiar products, there's a familiar smell. Yeah. That can help. And that's something people listening to this, you can um, re- really take from this, I hope, is... You know, where the advice comes from is to, to keep your bedroom, you know, just for sleep or intimacy. It's really to try and just associate bed and your bedroom with with sleep and rest yeah. rather than with Netflix and work emails and things yeah, because yeah. your brain does start making those associations. And I just want to, to, to sort of, you know, just, just focus in on that point. But you said something incredibly interesting there, which was that we know, and, and please correct me if I get this wrong, but the first night in a new sleep environment, yeah. you lose forty percent of recovery. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 not run away and and uh, clinically tested that, trialed that, or anything else. But I came across that, and and I don't think again, this is why you point out everything so practical and logical and common sense. I don't really need to find that out. I know. Yeah, right? I get that. I know that when I'm going into a different environment. I don't know. It, it smells differently. It's in a city or in the countryside. It's in a different country. It's a different product. Who was in that bath yesterday? What's in the carpet? What's under the bed? You know, are we next to the lift? Is there lots of people in the hotel making a lot of noise? So you just I, go, I, I, I read some science on this recently. You know, again, I can't. I quite... think it's probably a lot more than forty percent, fifty. Yeah, but it's just that it's almost an alarm to the body. Isn't it? It's your your body's on a bit of vigilance and high alert yeah, yeah. on an evolutionary level. It's okay. I don't yeah. know. Is it safe here? Yeah, yeah. And you know, on a, on a personal most level, definitely. I you know I spend a lot of time now, uh, well, more time than I used to in London. You know, okay. I live in the northwest of England, and that's where my patients are, and that's where I see people. Fantastic. Um, but I often end up in London quite a lot these days. And I've noticed as well, when if I have to stay over and I'm staying in a hotel, I like to stay in the same hotel. I've got, I've got one or two that I like yeah. staying in mm. because it, it now breeds that familiarity. And well, you're, actually, making, you're, making, you're making gains 
to the to, to maximising your recovery, knowing that it's going to be reduced anyway. Exactly, and it, and, I, and I remember recently I had to come down to do something uh, in the media, and it was a new company, and they've got their own hotels yeah. what they book, and I was trying to get the hotel I wanted, and they wouldn't. So no, this is where we use, and I didn't really sleep that well. Now you could argue it wasn't in my head before I went in, Absolutely. possibly, but I've I've sat there a few times now since, yeah. and I say it's really good there now, and yeah. it. I can absolutely resonate with that with that stat on some yeah. level. That first night in a new place, you don't sleep well. Yeah, it started like that, and and suddenly it was like the, the riders were just, you know, this is great, keep it up. And so we went to more levels, uh, and so not only did we go into the hotel room with their personalised kit, just unzip it on the floor. We also went round every surface the staff did, and clean every surface. Right, just just a, a nice. Try and reduce the risk of infection. Yeah, because the maids have cleaned it for ever rolling process of humans coming in and out of this room, whatever size they are, whatever's going on in their world, or what viruses they're carrying, or sure. whatever. So the maids do their job. So, but now we're putting an elite rider in there, and we're two and a half weeks into a tour. So, we would just give them the confidence that we have gone round and just wiped all the surfaces. With our protocol of cleaning, we had a powerful, you know, the handheld Dyson, and we would be able to pull the bed out and just okay. get around to get get as but, much. And we used to find things under the beds, which oh, I will not describe, <laughs> right? And then we put, we even went and we put a little high particle filter in the corner of the room for an hour, and that would literally, as you say, you spend a lot of time in London. I think every single day you're talking about the air quality in London and stuff like that. Is that that little high particle filter, and then you take the little filter out and it's dripping? You just realise that in the air, there's lots of things that would stop you nose breathing naturally, which is nice instead of mouth breathing. And we would also have some black bin liners and some black tape, and we would be able to control light and dark by using disposable things and put a little bit of black tape over the TV that's right in front of the bed, saying "Watch me." Because we know the rider's not going to get up and switch it off. They use the remote. But the little laser light stays on, yeah. is just great. So suddenly, you Team Sky Riders, yes, it was a hotel. It was part of the tour. There's another one tomorrow. But while they're riding along, they know that when they get there, the smells, the familiarizers, it's just like you're saying, we can't do much about the whole place. But what we can do is reduce their, maximize their recovery by reducing those things down as much and as and even can. and even psychologically just Amazing. them knowing that that was being Amazing. taken care of must have had a huge um, impact and well, you know you, so, we, you we know. mentioned marginal gains right and for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's a concept that you know particularly at these top elite sporting levels you know all these little one percent gains add up you yeah. know five one percent gains is five percent and you're looking yeah. for every potential uh you know, way to get to get ahead of your opponents and, yeah. your, and the opposing teams. I, I would argue that sleep is 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 not a marginal gain. It is m- way more than a marginal gain because, you know, that the impact of sleep. You just saw from you told me from Manchester United just from having that bit of nap time or recovery time in the middle of the day, performance uh, um, sprinting time is quicker in I the think, afternoon. It's just I incredible. Th- absolutely, I think this is a huge gain. I think that's where uh, you know. You, you asked a question a long time ago about does it relate to everybody else. All I'm doing is dealing with human beings. They have ever-increasing demands and schedules, and they just happen to be in sport. But they have families, they have partners, they have friends, they have children. So it really is, you know, that individual uh, is looking at their own recovery approach of what they're doing. What, what, what? Totally. So whether it's a nurse, a pilot, you know, and when you said before... Since a book came out and wandering around the world in 13 different languages now, I get doctors, I consult with doctors, I coach nurses, pilots, teachers at schools, students of 15, 16-year-olds, uh, absolutely everybody, uh, lorry drivers, taxi drivers. Wow. You well, everyone it. knows that they're not getting enough sleep and everyone wants more. Gra- graduate surgeons in the University of Tennessee because... They realise that doing 80 to 120 hours as a junior doctor may be all right in the 90s, we pointed out before, when we had lots of recovery breaks around us, but we didn't know, we didn't know what they were there to do, mm-hmm. give us recovery. Now we fill it with tech. So, well, they, Nick, this is a good, good opportunity to, 
to to finish off our conversation, which frankly I could go on for another two three hours with you. Um, I'm really fascinated by that connection between sleep and sport and elite performance. But you know, for those of you who who really resonate with what Nick's saying, the book he's got is called Sleep: uh, The Myth of Eight Hours, The Power of Naps, and the New Plan to Recharge Your Body and Mind. Um, I've now started doing show notes. So on my website, you will see all the links that we've spoken about. And there'll be a link to Nick's book uh, if you want to you know, take a look and, and see what he has to say there. Nick, how I try and end off is I try and give people who are listening to this podcast some simple, actionable things that they can put into practice into their own life or at least reflect on mm. immediately after this conversation. So I guess the question for me would be to you... In these 20 plus years of learning from some of the best athletes in the world and helping mm. them improve their sleep, what can Joe Public learn mm. from what you have learned? And, and, you know, what are those tips that you can give to the listeners at home? You know, maybe use your seven steps if you need to, or however you want to do it. What are some things that people can think about at home to improve yeah. the quality of their sleep? I think just picking up on the, on the last thing about marginal gains being quite minor in this area, Making just one little change, one little marginal change in any of those seven areas will ag- aggregate up into a significant improvement. People call about, you've revolutionized my life. So you don't have to make major steps. Little ones don't add up to one overall marginal gain like Chris Hoy, gold medal winner by a wheel. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, this could completely change it. And all you need to do is just simply follow what's in the book simple steps and it's simply tonight today just put in your browser circadian rhythms and you'll see some images of a 24-hour period of when testosterone blood pressure light and dark everything else which is happening every day and we all talk about harmony with patterns and rhythms if you just get a little bit of a better understanding of the human relationship with light and dark you'll start to figure it out the the next one is everybody's probably aware of owls and larks or they feel great in the morning and some people feel great at night. You might be a morning type, so you want to wake up early and you're starving when you wake up and you love the mornings. You might be somebody who likes to do all their paperwork at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's your chronotype. It's a little genetic twist. It's a bit like AMers are two hours in front of others. And when you look at the circadian rhythms and you look at that and you associate with it, then there's things you can do right tomorrow relative to your chronotype which can have an effect on your recovery. The big one really is number three, which is the myth of eight hours, is to change your mindset to sleeping in cycles rather than hours and realize that we, we've always slept in a polyphasic way rather than monophasic. So it's perfectly natural for you to do shorter periods more often and wake up in the middle of the night and feel happy. So the first thing you do is just identify your most consistent wake time. So mine is 6.30. Um, it means that I will wake any time between quarter to six, six o'clock, 20 past six. I'm always switching my alarm off unless I do something crazy. Um, and I like 6.30. It, it means I can pretty much do everything I've ever been asked to do. Uh, I don't become a sleep coach until 8 o'clock, the next 90 minutes, my post-sleep routine, which is really important in today's world. And all I do is chop the 24 hours up into 90 minutes. So I get 6.30, I've got 8 a.m. that way, but I also go back. So I've got 5, you get these timings back in 90-minute cycles, and if I go to sleep at 11 o'clock, that's 5 90-minute cycles into 6.30 that's 7.5 hours. But I can also sleep between 12.30 and 6.30, 2 a.m. and 6.30. So do you always have the same wake-up time? Yes. And, and that's I've, something really interesting yeah, yeah, you yeah. put in your book. Can you just expand on that a little bit for people I listening? I think the, the best thing about the day is the going to sleep for humans is very random uh, because we have so many things that we like to do in the evenings now because we've got electric light and technology. So, But the one thing is, is starting the day. So... What I've always liked about this is that the, the sun comes around the planet, and if we were sleeping outside, we would get these two hormone shifts, serotonin and melatonin. So literally, we get woken up by the start of the day. We become active, bowel and bladder, fuel and hydrate, and all of those things in that first part of the day. And I think that consistent point with the brain, 
with the circadian rhythms we have absolutely no control over is a good start to your yeah. process. The first 90 minutes is critical, which we could talk about for ages. But all I'm thinking is, right, good start to the day. I've woken up. I need to give myself plenty of time. So it's an unrushed approach because I'm in a very demanding world now. I think every 90 minutes I don't have a buzzer on my wrist, but I just think tiny little breaks, distractions every 90 minutes can add up to my recovery. I think of, you know, the, between one and three, everybody says to me they can't nap and they haven't got time to it. Do you know how much time we waste every day? So once you make it important that a little 20-minute cycle at lunchtime can actually improve and stop me wasting valuable time with this process, then you start doing it. The early evening one is fantastic because any AMers is if you put a little 20 minutes in between five and seven, you can enjoy the summer because you're about to shift the clocks. So right. one minute you're going home in the dark and you don't want to do anything. The next minute you don't want to be falling asleep at nine o'clock because everybody's out there having fun. So suddenly you start to have this relationship with polyphasic sleeping and you get this lovely thing where somebody will go, uh, well, instead of I get home from work, I've traveled, I've done this, I've got to do that and I've got to do that, I've got to cook some food, I've got to get to the gym, I've got to do this, I've got to pack my bag. Oh my God, there's only so many hours left before I've got to get up again. And it's panic. So we just go, well, do that in a nice, relaxed way. Wake up, do a couple of have cycles. Have a 20-minute nap. Have a couple of cycles at night. Wait, put the alarm on, wake up, you know, 2 o'clock, which is part of, you know, 11 till 2. Really? Yeah. And then iron the shirt, make a nice lunch, listen to music, make a few notes, and then go back and do 3.30 into 6.30. What? I can do that? Yeah, because if you take the pressure off your day and create these little polyphasic Well, moments, I think that's the best thing about your book for me is you do take the pressure off people and it's a very pragmatic approach to people in the modern world in terms of saying there's there's perfection and then there's actually yeah. reality. Uh, and, yeah, you know, and how can you bridge that gap? And, and I think a lot of people also, and this reminds me of a patient I saw literally this Monday in, in my surgery. Yeah. Uh, and this was, I was trying to encourage him to go... Um, he's in a busy, busy period. He's got a lot of work on. Right. He said, I don't have time to go out for walks. I don't have time to go out. So I just need to work. You know, I know how yeah. much work I've got to do. And I said, you know what? What you, you, you're not realizing is that actually going out for a 20 minute walk in the natural light in the morning, actually, and having that little break is going to make you way more productive when you come back. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. we don't, and, and I'm sure it's a, a little bit like that napping thing is that I don't have time. I've got too much work to do, but actually, they don't rubbish. realize that you have that. Yeah. And you'll be way more productive afterwards. I think there's this lovely, you know, it's about sleeping environments. And, and, and you think, I've got to go and buy a great big fat mattress with loads of things in it, a special pillow to help me sleep. Yeah, I've got to have a pre-sleep routine that's going to change. It's all really just uh, intrusive, non-real. They don't have an effect. You've got the wrong approach. And this just completely redefines what you're doing. So a lot of things you don't need to do, you can sleep on a bit of foam. As humans, we can sleep anywhere on any sure. time and anything. So you get this obsession about, you know, the bedroom and the products and, and all of those sort of things. When in a lot of my clients, they're sleeping in the middle of a track. They sleep in different hotels everywhere. They're hanging off the side of a mountain in a hook, you know, race across America on a mountain bike. My clients are just hopping off the bike and jumping onto a kit. Yeah, they don't have that big mattress so there, do they? You suddenly go, oh, I'm not sleeping well. I feel tired and everything else. I'll go and buy a new mattress and get a perfect night's sleep. Nah. So I think what it does is strip away a lot of things. Yeah. Nick, I, if we weren't pressured on time, I would literally go, keep going with you for another hour and maybe <laughs> maybe I can get you back on and we can do this in a few months and well we can the keep talking Ryan, can't we i mean we can leave the listeners and we can crack on talking uh, yeah exactly <laughs> but i i think i think people listening to this probably would have really found your very well a very unique perspective on sleep very you know super interesting and fascinating and it's come from elite sport but i hope they understand all it was was just finding a way and that way literally you know, if you're about to have children, then moving from a monophasic approach into a polyphasic approach with the kids, if you're already in a polyphasic approach, having children is a breeze. Yeah. And I <laughs> so think that's it the, relates to everybody. Be and, and that's, I think, the thing you do so well, Nick, is that you make it relatable to everyone and you take the pressure off, which I think is much needed in the world 
of, of sleep health. So we all know, don't we? You yeah. know, if you try and tell somebody to stop worrying about something or chill out, they're going to take no notice. You have to find a way and take them along a little path, and then they stop worrying about yeah. it, and they didn't know that they've done it. And I think that's what the book does to you. Yeah. Well, Nick, look, I really appreciate your time today, and I hope to have you back on the podcast very soon. Fantastic. That concludes the latest conversation on my Feel Better, Live More podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do take a screenshot of this page on your phone right now and post it on social media. Please do tag me on Instagram, Instagram stories, Facebook and Twitter. And please do use the hashtag Feel Better, Live More. I want this podcast to help transform the health of as many people as possible. So if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, that also helps me spread this message further. I'm always open to more suggestions. So again, please let me know on social media if you've got any more suggestions on people you would like to see me interview on this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me next time.